You're listening to a podcast from Red Sea Church, a community of faith in Portland, Oregon, whose mission is to draw to Christ, develop in community, and deploy into culture. What's up, friends? Man, it's good to see you guys, and it is good. It's good to be back here with you again today. So my name is Nathan Riley, uh, if we've never met, and I've been here before to Red Sea uh, a few times to preach and to lead worship. I did a little math and figured out the last time I was here was about six years ago. So not my first time here, though depending on how this goes today, it might be my last. I don't know. We'll see if you guys uh, let me come back again. When I was here six years ago, I was in an interesting phase of life because my family and I were preparing to launch a church plant, a church that's called Hub City Church. It's down in Albany, Oregon, just a little south of Salem in the in the valley. And so uh, what I wanted to do right here at the onset of my sermon is to express uh, my sincere gratitude for you guys. There is deep thankfulness in my heart for Red Sea Church and the role that you guys have played, if even from a distance, in my own formation and in my own life and in my path of ministry. For me, the connections to Red Sea go back quite a long ways. All the way back to Sean Garman, who some of you might know and others of you might not, but, but he's a guy that was a, a friend and a guy that I learned much from. An even deeper connection for me than with Sean is with Royce and, uh, and Josh. Um, I got to journey through convergence with those guys, uh, which began almost a decade ago. And then for you guys as a church on the whole, you may not know this, but you guys were one of the very first churches to jump on board with the church plant that I was a part of. Not only partnering with us through the work of prayer, but also through your financial support. And so uh, it's cool for me because I'm in this unique opportunity where I get to personally attest to the beautiful gospel work that you guys have been doing far beyond St. John's. And I am so appreciative of your faithfulness, your generosity over the years, and and your continued gospel work. So thank you guys. And I just want to say well done. Well done. So we planted this church, Hub City Church, down in Albany uh, about five years ago. And then just a little over a year and a half ago, I transitioned from Albany, from Hub City Church, to a new role at a new church, Antioch Church, which is over in Bend, Oregon. That's where I live now, in Central Oregon, uh, which means that my family, for the last year and a half, has been suffering for Jesus in 300 days of sunshine a year. Um, But, you know, the flip side is at least Bend is ugly. This is what it looks like currently. Um, That's just a picture kind of right out beyond our backyard. Um, So that's gross. The other thing about Bend is that it's never any fun, right? It's never any fun at all unless you like kayaking on pristine lakes or unless you like hiking or mountain biking or skiing or snowboarding or camping or fishing or rock climbing um, or floating the river. That's uh, kind of the old mill district of the Deschutes right there. So Bend is awful. That's my point. Um, But... But my family's actually from this area. We're from the valley originally. My wife actually grew up here in Portland, uh, which is what she makes me tell you. The truth is she actually grew up in Lake Oswego. She doesn't want anybody to know that, though. <laughs> but this is what happens when she doesn't come with me on preaching engagements, right? I just I get to say 
whatever I want. Uh, and she's super bummed, guys. She wanted to be here uh, with me and with you today. She loves and appreciates Red Sea Church every bit as much as I do. But she's, um, she's back in Bend. She's there with my kids. She's tied up this weekend. Uh, so my wife is, is a midwife, um, uh, a home birth midwife, which means she believes in witchcraft, um, <laughs> which, which then I realized is actually nothing new to you guys because you live in Portland, right? Like, I think everyone sort of kind of believes in it a little bit, um, but I give her grief about that all the time. I'm like, you can take the girl out of Portland. You can't take the Portland out of the girl, right? So, um, and, and so the reality is she has this client that's due this coming week uh, that's having twins, a home birth with twins, and so she's on call. She couldn't... She couldn't get away. She's got to be there for those births. Um, but then beyond my wife, we have four kids. I brought a picture of the family. There they are. Um, I thank God for all of them. They're wonderful. I especially thank God that my children look so much more like my wife than they do look like me, which is going to serve them well in their future. Um, like I said, guys, I'm stoked. Stoked to be here with you this morning. Even more excited uh, to have the privilege of opening God's Word with you. A couple months ago, Josh called me up and he asked me if, if I would come and preach. And uh, he, he told me that I would just get to continue in the teaching series, the, the, the sermon that series that you guys have been in. And he's like, we're working through the gospel of John. And I was like, sweet. I love John's gospel. That sounds great. And then he gave me my passage and he's like, you're just going to do all of chapters 19 and 20. Which, in the moment, I thought, like, that seems like a lot of text until I realized, oh, it's only the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> like at the sa- it's, it's only the, the absolute central tenets of the entirety of the Christian faith. It's, it's only the heartbeat of, of all that we believe and the epicenter of all Christian thought and teaching and writing for the last 2,000 years. And so I told him, I was like, dude, that sounds like a lot to try to, to, try to tackle. It seems pretty ambitious. And he was like, no, it's cool. You got 30 minutes. You'll be good. <laughs> I was like, thank you. Uh, so we got our work cut out for us this morning. We need to dive in to the text. And the reality is because there's just so much text to cover, we're not going to get to all of it. And so what I've done actually is I've just selected three smaller passages within this greater passage. And, and I want to I look at those three and I want to make just a really quick, simple observation about each of those. So if you are a note taker, which some of you may be, I want to tell you where we're going this morning. We're going to look at these three things. We're going to see these, things, these three things in the text. First, we're going to discover the culmination of John's gospel. Secondly, the power of John's gospel. And thirdly, the purpose of John's gospel. Okay, so the culmination, the power, and the purpose. Um, But first, let me me start us off with a word of prayer. If, If you can, if you're willing, if you're able, would you stand with me, actually, as I pray over this word in this morning? Yeah, Heavenly Father, it is a delight to gather together with these brothers and sisters and together to look at your word this morning. God, my prayer this morning uh, is that your spirit would be with us. The same spirit that was actively present in these events as they unfolded 2,000 years ago and the same spirit that inspired John's recording and writing of these words by that same spirit would you today inspire our reading and our understanding of this ancient 
sacred text in a way that doesn't just fill our minds with interesting ideas and cool thoughts and whatever, but, but actually begins to do the deeper work of transforming our hearts and our lives from the inside out. And so, um, God, we come together under your word, recognizing its authority and truth in our lives, and, and beg of you, be, be present, be speaking. Use this time, God, for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, snag a seat. Point one, the culmination of John's gospel. Uh, We can read together in chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. And so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. So three simple words, but three unbelievably powerful words. And it's a, it's, it's a powerful moment, too, because these are words of exceedingly good news, but, but then the flip side of the coin, they're words of sorrow at the same time. You know, these are words, this is a moment that I chose several years ago to remember every single day of my life. So I don't even know if you can read it from there. I actually have those words tattooed here on my arm. Um, it is finished. It's this beautiful, powerful statement. And these words are important regardless of, of when you um, encounter them. But, but in particular, these words are important in John's gospel. And, and if you were to start back at the very beginning of John's gospel, and if you were to ever sit down and read it through in a single sitting, which will take you several hours, but I guarantee you is worth it, um, you, you would discover this, this inescapable sense in which the entire book, there's been this building tension, Right? The book has, has, been, has been building, and as the book continues, uh, it, it just sort of gets more energetic, and, and, and it's, it's heading somewhere. So there's, there's a term that we use in music to describe this, and the term is crescendo. I don't know if you've, if you've heard that term before, but, but basically a crescendo is when, when music, it starts soft, but then gets progressively louder and more intense, right? It becomes faster paced. It builds and builds and builds, and it's building to this climactic moment, and that's exactly what's happening uh, in John's gospel up to this point. And so it started with some beautiful poetry in the first few verses, but then Jesus breaks on the scene, and it starts with this kind of cool story of this miracle where he takes some water and he turns it into like 130 gallons of wine, which is just epic, right? And, and then, but then, like, a couple pages later, he's grabbing a whip, and he's clearing house in the temple. He's flipping over tables, and he's running people out of the Lord's house, and then all of a sudden, these religious leaders start plotting, and how they're going to bring him down, and the tension only continues to build uh, as he's upsetting cultural norms, and as he's becoming friends of sinners and, and outcasts, and he starts making all of these crazy claims about, like, being the good shepherd, and being the way, and the truth, and the life, and then and even more miracles are happening and even more of his enemies are plotting his downfall. It's crescendoing. It's building. It's going somewhere. And all the while, what we discover is Jesus is a man on a mission. He's on a mission. 
See, throughout his life, people are constantly questioning him. They're questioning his identity. They're questioning his purpose. But the truth is, Jesus never was. Jesus was never questioning these things. Jesus knew what he was on about. And there are multiple times in John's gospel that he lays it out for us really clearly. I want to point to just two of them really quick. So back in chapter 4, Jesus says this, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. To accomplish his work. Then in chapter 9, he says, We must work the works of him who sent me. What is Jesus about? What is his purpose? He was about carrying out the will of his Father. Full stop. He was about accomplishing the will of his Father. And so when we hold that truth, that mission of Jesus, up against his final words here, it is finished, we realize all of a sudden what he's talking about. As he's hanging there on the cross and he shares these three words, it is finished. He's not, it's, this is not simply a statement about his own life. He's not just saying, I'm, I'm finished. I'm about to die. This is a proclamation of completion. He did it. Mission accomplished. He fulfilled the work that the Father had given him. And so what was that work? What was this mission that the Father had for him to accomplish? I think you guys know. I think you know. Let's unpack it a little bit. There's this this theologian. um, His name is F.F. Bruce. He died about 30 years ago. um, But he was a Scot, right? He's from Scotland. So I like to picture him looking something like Braveheart. Um just because that's how I picture all Scottish people in my mind. Uh, but he was, uh, he was a towering figure in the realms of academia and, and in the realms of biblical theology and in particularly within evangelicalism, right? He's this, this towering figure, but he was also a massively frustrating figure for many. Because the thing about F.F. F. Bruce is that he didn't fit neatly and cleanly into any um, doctrinal or denominational or ecclesiastical camps. He was really hard to label. Okay? And, and so back in the 80s, he was asked by an interviewer why he objected to being called a conservative evangelical. He did not embrace that title. Why do you reject being called this? And he responded, he said, because conservatism is not the essence of my position. That's what he said. Okay? And they're like, well, okay, but then how about evangelical, right? What do you mean by evangelical, the interviewer asked. And his response, I think, really clearly speaks to this question of what is God's mission in the world. Check out out what he says. He said, an evangelical is someone who believes in the God who justifies the ungodly. To believe in him and nothing more or nothing less is to be evangelical. Anything that begins to allow for an element of human merit or human achievement in the work of salvation is, to that extent, non-evangelical. The God who justifies the ungodly. Now, we recognize that is not how evangelical 
is defined today in America, right? But Bruce was not giving us a sociological definition, was he? He's giving us a theological definition. And he was identifying in in these words the very essence of the evangel, right? The, The gospel, the good news that defines God's relationship with humanity. What was the Father's will that Jesus was carrying out? At its core, the justification of the ungodly. Or we could say it this way. It was the work of bearing the penalty of sins fully and completely. So that no more penalty for sin was left to be paid. Jesus' mission was to be the ultimate and forever sacrifice. Or as the author of Hebrews states it in chapter 9, He, Jesus, has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Christ, to bear the sins of many. It is finished. Amen? Friends, this is the culmination of John's gospel. But here's the really amazing thing about this particular verse and this passage. Is that it's not just John that finds its completion in this moment. If we look back again at verse 28... It says um, that this was happening to fulfill the Scripture, right? To fulfill the Scripture. Now, quick question for you here. Um, In the New Testament, when they refer to the Scriptures, right? You know what they're referring to? When John refers to the Scripture here, to what is he referring? It's the Old Testament, right? That was their Bible. (laughs) And so he's referring to the law and the prophets, and in particular, a psalm, Psalm 69. But generally speaking, the Scripture, the law and the prophets, meaning the powerful thing in this moment is this culmination, this fulfillment. It's not merely the climax of the last 33 years of Jesus' earthly life. We're talking about the apex of human history. All of it, finding its climax in this moment. And so as Jesus cries out these final words and he gives up his spirit, this is the fulfillment, the completion, the realization of the scriptures. What all these, these, these messianic prophecies that have been foretold for thousands of years in the Old Testament, he's completing this. We realize in this moment that Jesus is the snake crusher from Genesis. And Jesus is the true Passover lamb from the Exodus. And he is the ultimate deliverer. He is the the true and better judge, the true and eternal king. He's he's the savior whom, whom Isaiah and the other prophets foretell of, the one who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Do you see this? It is finished is a big statement. And it stretches all the way back. All the way back to the Garden of Eden when everything started going south. Guys, this is the culmination of the entire Scripture, the center point, the hinge pin of human history. And it's the announcement of our justification. May we celebrate it. May we delight in it. So Jesus shares these words, it says, and then he gave up his spirit, right? He died. 
And I don't want to ruin the story for you. There's really good news, though, because he didn't stay dead, right? And, and that fact, the, the, the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, brings us to, to the second chunk of verses that I, I want to look at together. So point two, uh, the power of John's gospel. Let's look at the power of John's gospel. Chapter 20, uh, verses 11 through 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at his head and one at his feet. I want to pause for just a second for a quick little side note. Uh, If we were to read a little bit earlier, what we find is that uh, John and Peter had just been to the tomb. They actually had a foot race uh, to get there. And um, they get there, and and immediately before Mary looked in the tomb, these two dudes look in the tomb, right? They stick their heads in and basically say, lame, there's nothing here except for some old laundry, and they peace out. They're like, we're going home. (laughs) There's nothing here, we're going home. They leave. Um, then, Then we pick up verse 11. Mary looks inside the tomb. And she sees two angels sitting there, right? Which for me begs the question, how did they miss the angels? They looked at like seconds before her. These dudes are looking at They missed the angels. I was wrestling with that this week and realized there's a perfectly logical explanation. And my wife calls it man eyes. Like man eyes. Um, man eyes is what happens when a man looks for anything, Right? Uh, and I think most often happens when a man looks in the refrigerator. So let me unpack this for you. A regular occurrence in conversation at my house. I'm at the refrigerator and I'm looking inside and I'm like, babe, where is the mustard? We are out of mustard. We are running out of mustard. And then she calls from the living room. She's like, no, we're not. It's in there. It's right there on the top shelf, right in the middle. I'm like, no. There's no mustard, and now I I guess dinner is ruined. This is the worst day ever. And then she will walk into the kitchen and open the door and look, and then magically the mustard appears exactly where she said it it had been, even though I swear to you it wasn't there a moment earlier. That's man eyes, right? You you can't see what's right in front of you. And, And I'm pretty sure that's what's happening here. I think that's how they missed it. So it's not... It's not referenced in our, you know, English translation. I'm pretty sure it's in the Greek, but uh, let's jump back to verse 13. They, this is the angels, said to Mary, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know it was Jesus. And he said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Mary. Have you ever considered what it'll feel like someday to hear Jesus say your name. Right? Josh. Tara. Royce. What a moment 
that will be. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. While I would love to spend a whole bunch of time slugging through the trenches of the theological significance of the resurrection. Uh, we, we just don't have the time, right? You can blame Josh for giving me such a big passage. We don't have time to get into all of that. Uh, the good news for you guys is that in like a couple of months, Easter's coming. And, and the really good news for you guys is that you guys have a good, a, a great, a godly team of teachers here at Red Sea that are going to do an excellent job unpacking the resurrection when the time comes. Um, instead, this morning, actually what I want to do is just share with you a couple of observations, that things that I saw in the text for the very first time ever this week as I, as I wrestled with this, stuff that blew me away, and I thought it was really, really powerful. So this first observation, I have to give thanks to Frederick Dale Bruner. Uh, he wrote a fantastic commentary on the Gospel of John. Um, But he makes an interesting note here. So, Jesus says to Mary in verse 17, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Now, that seems like a simple enough statement until we realize that this is literally the first time, the first time, Jesus has ever referred to God as my father and your father. It's the, first, it's the first time that he combines both of those statements, my father, your father, into a single idea and a single statement. Up until this point in the story and across all four of the gospel accounts, he always keeps those things distinct from one another. The closest he ever got to it was one time he referred to our Father, and that was when he was teaching the disciples how to pray, right? The Lord's Prayer. But never has he ever said, my Father and your Father, until this moment. Meaning what? Meaning that this crucifixion and resurrection has not only accomplished our justification, but also our full and complete reconciliation. Or, to use another theological term, our adoption. Our adoption. Humanity is now being defined not just as servants of God and not merely as as God's creation or His people or His followers, right? But as His dearly beloved sons and daughters, just as Christ is His beloved Son. Josh Moody says it this way, this work of Jesus has now opened up the throne room of heaven so that Jesus' disciples can have an intimate relationship with the Father God through faith in the Son of God. He is now their Father as well as the Son's Father. Amen. 
who's the very first person to hear this? Who's the very first person to have this epically redefined relationship pronounced over them? Mary. Little Mary. The first person to discover her daughterhood. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that must have been like for her? My God and your God. My Father and your Father. I hope you can imagine it. Because my hope is that you have experienced it. Because friends, this same relationship, this same declaration of sonship or daughterhood, of intimacy with a father who is madly crazy in love with his children is available to us. It is something that we can receive by faith. Friends, there is power here. A love that makes us new. Will you receive it? Will you receive it? I pray that you will. Before we move on to my, my final point here, I, I, want, I want us to observe just one more aspect of the sort of the power here in John's gospel. And so what I want to do really quickly is, is look at just the circumstances and the setting of, of these particular verses, of, of, of the events that just unfolded, this particular moment in the story, okay? And I want to make note of just a couple of things um, as we sort of briefly summarize the narrative, what just happened, okay? So first of all, first observation is this. The whole thing takes place in a garden, right? This whole occurrence between Mary and Jesus. It all takes place in the garden. Secondly, we have these angels that have rolled away this stone, right? And and thus by doing, opened the door to resurrection and new life. Next, we have this woman who encounters Jesus. We have Jesus who comes seeking her, and as he does, he asks her a question, right? Mary, why are you crying? Fourthly, this woman is the first one to receive or over whom is pronounced this reconciled relationship with God, right? My father and your father. She's the first one to experience this. Next, she then takes this message of new life, right? Resurrection and hope. And she takes it to the men, right? And, and by extension, to the world. She's bearing this message of, of reconciliation and life. And finally, this is the beginning of reconciled creation, Life, resurrection life has now entered the picture and clearly God is on the move, okay? That's what we just read in summary. That's a picture of what's going on here. Now, as I observed these events unfolding, I couldn't help, I couldn't help but notice a striking resemblance to another story in our Bible, what we could call a parallel story. It's parallel, but also it's the inverse. It's like the same but inverted. If you remember the story, I'd like to like to draw your attention back to Genesis chapter three. And let me try to display for you what's going on here. First of all, that story all takes place where? In a garden, right? And this woman, Eve, is the first 
of creation to be deceived. And she, she's led into sin and her relationship with God is fractured. The first to experience this fractured relationship, right? And then she takes this sin, this death, and does what? She passes it on to man and then by extension, the world. What happens next is she encounters God. God comes seeking her and doing what? Asking a question. Why are you hiding from me? Then what happens? They are cast out of the garden. And what happens? And an angel is posted there at the door of the garden, not opening the way to life, but sealing the way to life. And finally, what we recognize is that this is the beginning of fractured creation, of fallen creation. Death has entered the picture. Sin is on the move. You guys see any similarities between these stories? <laughs> right? Is that not fascinating? I'd never seen that before. I thought it was like, it's un- the, the parallels here are uncanny. It's the same story, except it's just been inverted. If I may be so bold as to quote a sixth, a sixth century pope, uh, Gregory the Great, he says this, He says, so the sin of mankind is buried in the very place whence sin came forth. For whereas in paradise the woman gave the man the deadly fruit, now a woman from the tomb announced life to men. A woman now delivers the message of him who raises us from the dead as a woman had earlier delivered the words of the serpent who slew us. John 20 is the undoing of Genesis 3. It's the better story. It's the story of life. It's the story of hope. And it's it's our story. And it's beautiful. And it's powerful. And it changes us. It changes us. And that leads me to my third and final point. And that is that we see in the text the purpose of John's gospel. If you jump forward a few verses in chapter 20 to 30 and 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Catch this. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. One of the chief tasks in reading Scripture and in understanding Scripture, and particularly in teaching from the Bible, um, is discovering uh, what's referred to as authorial intent, right? What, what, meaning, what was the author intending to say here? What, what, is, what is their purpose in communicating this? What do they want us to hear? And sometimes that's really tough to get to the bottom of. Not so here in John's gospel because he spells it right out for us. <laughs> why, why is he writing this? What is he intending for us to get? He says, I've written all this so that you may believe and that by believing you may have life. John wants people. John wants us 
to embrace and to place our faith in Christ, the Son of God. He wants people to experience this reconciled relationship to their loving Father. And I love the fact that he's completely unashamed about this, right? He's completely unashamed of his motivations. You could, you could say that he is unapologetically evangelistic. <laughs> oh, that we could be so bold. So the question is, what do we do with this text? At the end of the day, so this is a lot of great information. What do we do with this? We should believe it. That's what we do. We believe it and find life in Jesus' name by doing so. Find reconciliation with our loving Father, adoption in His family, our sonship and daughterhood. And friends, I want you to know, like if you're if you're here today and 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 you've never found yourself believing, you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I want you to know that's something you can do. <laughs> you're allowed to do that. You can do that today, in fact. And if that's you and you're wrestling, man, I would love uh, the opportunity to chat with you for a few minutes after the service, maybe answer some questions. We're not just me. We've got a whole handful of, of leaders around here that would love to meet with you, to talk with you, to pray with you. Let's continue the conversation. That's for those of you that that would say, I'm not sure that I believe this. Others of you in this room, probably many of you, would say, yeah, I've already checked that box, right? I've already believed. I've already placed my faith in Jesus. In fact, I've been a believer uh, maybe for years, for decades. If that's you, let me invite you to calm down for a minute because you're not off the hook just yet. Uh, If that's you saying, I already believe, then, then I want to point you back to those final words of Jesus that we read, Jesus' final words to Mary in verse 17. Do you catch what he said? He said, Do not cling to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go. (laughs) Go to my brothers and tell them all of this. Tell them this news. What is Jesus saying to Mary? He said, Mary, I appreciate the adoration. I appreciate that you're clinging to me. But also, Mary, there's work to be done. There's a mission. The life that Jesus was calling her to was not merely, let's say it this way, was not merely a life of passive amazement, but a life of active mission. She was not called simply to to, to, to cling to him and in the, the comfort of his presence and just, but to share him to share him with the world. And I think that maybe some of us in the room today need a gentle push in that same direction. We're clinging to Jesus. And now we need to share Jesus. We started at the beginning of, of, of this sermon talking about this, this purpose and mission of Jesus' life, right? And we end the sermon recognizing that we have a mission as well. That we too must work the works of him who has sent us. And so let that be a challenge to you. May we believe, and by believing, find life and power, but may we also live this gospel mission of good news to the world around us. Why? Because our Savior's got us. We're good.
We're secure in Him. And that's John's Gospel. There you've got it. So I'd like to to invite you guys now uh, to a time of responding to the good news of the Gospel. And our worship leader is going to make their way back up and lead us in a few more songs. And as they do, uh, I want to let you know that the table is open. And uh, man, in a very practical way, as an act of belief and faith, recognizing the, the, the faith that we have because of Christ's justifying work on our behalf and recognizing the fact that we are adopted as dearly loved members of God's family. We get to come and, and partake in this beautiful feast. And it's an epic feast. It's a tiny little feast. But as we take the bread, we remember Christ's body broken for us in this moment, that it is finished. And we dip it in the, the juice, remembering His blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And we feast as an act of worship and adoration and recognition of God's commitment and love for us, friends, I invite you to the table. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we recognize your abundant goodness to us this morning. We recognize as well the cost of your love. The reality of the gospel is that you gave your son away in order to bring us who were far from you to yourself. Jesus was cast out of your family that we might be brought in. And so we're thankful for our justification. We're thankful for your unending love and our adoption. Jesus, we're thankful for your faithfulness, your perfect life, your death, your resurrection, your ascension, all so that we could be reconciled into your family, so that your Father would be our Father, so that your God would be our God. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take these gospel truths and that you would sink them deeply into our hearts over these coming moments. Help us to know the great love with which you loved us. And may we follow you as believers and those who are called to live out your mission. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Red Sea Church. If you would like more information about Red Sea, including more audio messages, please visit us at www.redseachurch.org or contact us at info at redseachurch.org.